Hello and welcome to Facing Race. I'm your host, Layla Schultz-Ames. In today's episode, we're going to talk about music. And of course, we know African Americans have influenced all different genres of music from jazz to country. So we'll be talking about all of that. Stay tuned. talked about music yet on this podcast and I thought it could be a really interesting thing because everybody listens to music and music is universal whether you're black or white and really any anybody everybody listens to music you know music is one of those things that I think we can all connect to and there's so many different types of music and different types of genres it's hard not to find something that you like I mean there's music that lifts you up there's music that makes you feel sad there's music that gets you worked up there's music that works you out there's everything you know so again it's a really universal thing and and while i'm not musically talented by any means i really wish i I could sing or play an instrument or something i do find it really interesting to talk about music and particularly to look at different types of music and explore the history as well because it's one of those things that african americans africans also Caribbean, a lot of a lot of people uh, and a lot of cultures have influenced the music that we listen to today, particularly in America. So a lot of times I think when we think of African mu- African-American music or black music, we think about R&B or jazz. But there's really all different types of music. And actually, today, later on in the episode, I'm going to be speaking with a special guest, Dr. Malik Boykin. And he's going to talk a little bit about music and his work as well at at Brown University in, in Providence. So I think there's really a lot to look at. But first, I sort of wanted to just t- touch a little bit about the history of Black music and sort of go from there. So I think a lot of Black music was really meant to reflect both the hardships and triumphs that Black Americans have experienced in the U.S. And their music has also served to kind of shape that national identity and really influencing the lives of Americans. I think a lot of it, too, is music that's rooted in Africa. And if you think about, if we kind of rewind and look way, way back, we know that the first Africans transported to this country came from a variety of ethnic groups with a long history of distinct and, and cultivated musical traditions. And some were able to bring musical instruments with them or build new ones in the country. The banja or bansha, for example, now is known as the banjo, was one of the African instruments that continued to be built and played in America. And Africans in America also fashioned numerous types of drums and percussion instruments from whatever materials they could gather. So slaveholders, however, you know, of course, they eventually discovered that African slaves were using drums to communicate amongst themselves. And by the 1700s, drums had been banned on plantations. African-American slaves on southern plantations, of, of course, cultivated their own musical styles, and it later evolved into gospel, blues, and what is now known as bluegrass and, and country music. So slave fiddlers often provided dance music, actually for, for a lot of southern white uh, gentlemen, 
And the sound we recognize today as country fiddling is is actually really a product of the slave fiddler. Um, Most slaves were not allowed to own instruments or could not afford to to purchase them. But of course, again, they used a lot of makeshift instruments and even their own bodies, and they created really unique musical ensembles. And one of the most, most influential aspects from African music was really this rhythm, right? And a lot of these complex rhythms that were found and really are actually still found in African music today. So over time, many distinct practices and traditions of African music were either forgotten or blended with other musical traditions. But nevertheless, African music continued to really flow into the new world. And as a result of the slave trade, which continued illegally well into the 19th century, of course, 19th century, uh, one of the most widespread of early musical forms among Southern Blacks was the spiritual. Neither Black versions of white hymns nor transformations of songs from Africa, these spirituals were actually very distinctly African-American responses to the American condition. So it wasn't really anything that was necessarily brought over uh, on slave ships. These are things that really came about as a way to sort of speak up, if you will, against the treatment. So it really expressed the longing of slaves for spiritual and bodily freedom, for safety from just everything, sort of just fighting against the hardships of, of slavery. And if you think about a lot of these songs, because I think probably a lot of people have at least heard a couple of songs that are familiar, many of the songs offer these kind of coded messages, right? So you had Follow the Drinking Gourd or Steal Away or Wade in the Water. They contain a lot of these coded instructions for Escape to the North. And others like Sometimes I Feel Like a Mother's Child or I'm Troubled in Mind. They conveyed this feeling of despair that black slaves felt. And the spirituals also served as critiques of slavery. Now they used a lot of biblical metaphors to protest enslavement of black people. We obviously know Go Down Moses, or Go Down Moses, Way Down to Egypt Land, Tell a Fair to Let My People Go. So a lot of these spirituals also provided African Americans with a means of transcending their enslaved conditions, of really imagining a life of freedom, right? You have lyrics like, Ride on, King Jesus, ride on, no man can hinder thee. So a lot of this was really, really, really important for them. With the rise of Jubilee singers in the 1870s, the spirituals began to to be seen as music that really revealed the beauty and the depth of the African-American culture. And beginning in 1871, the Fisk Jubilee singers actually toured the U.S. and Europe, and they performed a lot of these Negro spirituals for white audiences. Until they brought these songs to national and international attention, a lot of Negro spirituals were widely considered to be really crude and embarrassing holdovers from slavery. But the success of these Fisk Jubilee singers really spawned a number of similar singing groups and it really created a sense of pride to a lot of newly freed blacks. 
so that was a big thing. And then in the early part of the 1900s, as a result of the work of Black composers, the performance of Negro spirituals became a tradition among Black singers, particularly singers of classical music. So ragtime documents reveal that it was being played as early as the 1870s. And so a lot of Black musicians spoke of ragging a tune, which is sort of like this use of different rhythms, whether it was classical compositions or popular songs or or dance tunes. So Black musicians could rag tunes on any instrument, and the music that we actually call ragtime really developed when the piano actually replaced the violin as one of the the instruments for, for dance. So it's interesting how that kind of connects back to it. And from what I learned from what I was reading, the standard ragtime piece consists of several different musical ideas that are sort of held together by a main opening theme. So the strains, as as they were called, were often about 16 bars in length, and they had alternating themes and, and sounds. And the original idea was that the piano would be a big part of that. Uh, but then in the early 1900s, it sort of evolved, the piano sort of went more towards jazz, and then the ragtime itself sort of, we saw a bit more use with the the violin, and and there's a little bit more uh, mixing and changing. So essentially ragtime evolved out of two other musical styles. You had the coon song and the cakewalk. So Okay, the coon song was a racist term used to describe the music of white minstrels performing in blackface in acts that were supposed to be humorous imitations of black slaves. And I think this is something that we've all probably seen clippings, videos of these minstrels, right? The blackface minstrels was a popular entertainment throughout most of the 19th century, and it was at first performed only by whites, though blacks have eventually formed their own type of minstrel shows. Uh, the great blues singer Gertrude Ma Rennie actually began her career in a black minstrel. Uh, it was actually called the Rabbit Foot Minstrels. And she was later joined by Bessie Smith, who was another fantastic singer. And an early form of popular American music Coon songs were actually written, interesting enough, by both black and white composers. The blues is is probably perhaps the simplest American musical form, but it's also really, really intricate. So along with jazz, blues kind of takes its shape and style in, in the process of the performances, and it has a really high degree of flexibility, right? And and a lot of these musical and lyrical elements of the blues can be traced back to West Africa, right? The blues, like the, the spiritual, is is a product of slavery and it's a product of, of those times. But a lot of people always wonder, okay, when and where did blues originate? And that was something I was curious about too because we sort of just know, okay, blues has been around, but where did it come from? Well, in my research, it's interesting because it seems that no one can say for sure. We know only that it began in the South during slavery and in the years following slavery spread throughout the region as early sort of bluesmen sort of wandered from place to place. And one of them was called Bunk Johnson. 
and he claimed to have played nothing but blues as a kid and he was a child in the 1880s in in that that time frame so we know that he was definitely a big a big part of it but again we don't really know where it started we know that as the nation moved into the 20th century, the blues evolved and it started borrowing elements from other musical genres like gospel and ragtime. And there's a lot of more instruments, there's a lot more sort of styles. People brought the music with them in the cities uh, at the dawn of what was the industrial age. And we know the early blues was an acoustic sort of musical tradition and that it was really focused on on that, right? A lot of singing. Um, and then we also have, of course, what we call sort of the classical blues that we sort of know and love today. But speaking of that, speaking of moving to the cities, uh, that was also a big part of it too, right? The migration was not only about changing, about changing your scenery, but it was also about music as well and the history of blues in the 20th century kind of provides one example of the link between black migration and a lot of cultural changes. So we know that industrialization brought around a lot of these technological advances in recording. And we know the growth of the radio was a really big part of it. So a lot of blues traditions sort of spread and came into contact with each other. And by the 1940s, there was actually a rich, thriving national blues culture that was embraced by Blacks, not just in the cities, but also in the countries as well. And the second great migration, which was the one from the Mississippi Delta to Chicago in the 1940s, produced a new blues form known as Chicago blues, which was really native to, of course, industrial city. And Muddy Waters became the leading inventor sort of of that new style once he reached Chicago in 1943. So and kind of this curious migration of musical style, there's really a lot of just this this great coming together, right? This great mixing. And it's interesting too, because a lot of artists on the other side of the pond, a lot of these British musicians were really inspired by it, right? So you had members of the Yardbirds, the Rolling Stones, Fleetwood Mac, the Beatles, they all kind of credited these Chicago bluesmen as their sort of musical fathers, if you will. And a lot of these leaders of the British invasion, right, of 1960s, they were really influenced by a lot of this this blues. So that's a really interesting part of it, you know, and a lot of this sound not only was it in Chicago, but also New Orleans as well. That was really a big part of it with a lot of these local brass bands. There's just a lot of of black artists that were kind of mixing blues with jazz and and it sort of became this whole whole big thing. So it's really interesting when you look at the history of of a lot of these sort of old old school music, if you will. It's just interesting to see how it started and how it all kind of blended together. So a lot of those roots in music were from many decades ago, but we can still see the influence even in today's music. And in a recent-ish Twitter rant, Kanye West sort of called out the music industry and labels exploitation of Black artists. And he essentially compared the industry to a modern-day slave ship, which, you know, sounds a little bit 
over the top, but he did get one thing right, which I think is that music is indebted to black people. I think we can't really imagine modern music without its African influence. It just doesn't exist. And the truth is that music labels and artists have kind of built their empires on the backs of black creators in a lot of ways, which I think they're not always willing to acknowledge. And sometimes you see white artists that receive a lot of kudos for kind of black art. And it's not just like Macklemore or Eminem, you know, a lot of these rapper hip hop artists. It it actually goes, you know, quite further and it's quite deeper. And as I mentioned in my previous episode, a lot of times we see that things that black people do are trendy, uh, whether it's the music or dancing or whatever, that's kind of seen as cool. You know, Miley Cyrus uh, twerked several years ago and that was like, wow, you know, twerking, she invented twerking, when obviously that's something that came from the Caribbean. And so a lot of this stuff, you know, a lot of times it's sort of, well, again, as I mentioned in my previous episode, it's sort of cool, those elements are cool, and so people want to kind of adopt that, you know, and that's something, again, we saw in the 20th century minstrel shows where the white musicians would perform appropriative music in blackface, and they would be, you know, successful. They would be, uh, people found that entertaining, they thought it was, was great fun, and while nowadays we don't we don't have that, it is oftentimes, you know, true that white artists are more commercially successful than black artists. Uh, and even at times they, you know, have borrowed the music that black artists created uh, and they, they had more success than the black artists. So a lot of this is still playing out in 21st century music. So I think a lot of times, too, you have a lot of black innovators and creators in music that are sort of, you know, we sort of have these genres, I guess, that we sort of put these black artists in hip hop, R&B, reggae, Afropop. And it's kind of this one size fits all term of urban, you know, urban music. And I think a lot of times it sort of puts these black musicians and the contributions to music, it kind of forces them into one category and that's that's a really big problem i think you know country music for example i'm not a huge huge fan of country music but there is a lot of interesting history there and and there's also nowadays too i mean particularly this week there's been a lot of talk with Lil Nas X and his recent music video. Uh, but even, I mean, even before that, you know, a couple of years ago, obviously he hit the the airwaves with his sort of country trap song, Old Town Road, and that became a huge hit. And that actually topped the, the R&B hip hop song chart, but also the country song chart as well. And suddenly you had this young black artist from Atlanta who was kind of the center of the debate of like race and Nashville and music genres and you had a lot of country radio stations that actually refused to play the song they wouldn't explain why they just said no we're not we're not playing it and then you had billboards kind of determining that the song was not really country enough and it was kind of this big thing and and the New York Times actually described it as saying basically they said, oh, this 
black kid hadn't really merged into white music yet he's like this black person but he's in what he it was very confusing for them you know they didn't really know how to label him a black kid in country but pop and hip-hop so there's a lot a lot going on but i think what people don't always realize is that country music can trace its root to the american south and a lot of it did actually come from race climate like the racial climate and a lot of black influences so the black influence on country music actually started again with the banjo and the lute that was brought to america by slaves and that again became a central part of the slave spirituals and the field songs and the song was for one of a better word appropriated and spread to white audiences through these minstrel and blackface shows and likewise many of the songs by white country artists were actually taken from black sources without a lot of times really getting credit. So we saw that in country music and we also of course saw that a lot with rock and roll, you know, and and a lot of times I think nowadays we kind of consider rock and roll to be like a white genre. A lot of its origins actually lie in the black community. Um, Rock and roll was something that really evolved from R&B in the 1940s. And it was categorized as kind of a race, race music. And the godmother of rock and roll was a woman called Sister Rosetta Tharp. And she kind of turned this music into what we know it today with guitar and kind of more more movement, a lot more going on. She kind of added spice to it, right? And it soon became a really like mainstream cultural phenomenon. And we started seeing artists like Little Richard and Chuck Berry. And, and they were quite popular. And then you had Elvis, of course, Elvis Presley come into the scene and, you know, his distinct voice and his swiveling hips. And then he got the nickname King of Rock and Roll. And he kind of, you know, took it and ran. And he took also a lot of songs. A lot of the songs that he sang were uh, previously, they had previously been recorded by black artists. So it's kind of that situation where black artists sort of built rock and roll and then it kind of left them behind. So, I mean, there's really a lot. I think there's a lot that you can kind of look at. Um, Even something like house music. Uh, I was reading an article actually about house music and Chicago house producer Derek Carter said in 2015, quote, something that started as a gay black Latino club music is now sold, shuffled and packaged as having very little to do with either, end quote. So I think what Carter is basically talking about is how the LGBTQ and African-American and Latino communities kind of created the cultural phenomenon that is house, right? House music in Chicago's underground clubs with really little to no recognition. And probably any of my listeners from Chicago will know that a black DJ, he was a gay, black gay DJ named Frankie Knuckles. He was kind of known as the godfather of house. And he was kind of credited with creating this genre. 
and he essentially it started because he remixed disco into kind of like early house music in the late 70s and so he sort of put all of this together and then years later david gutas of, of pop culture had kind of become like the the black narrative of house music so really this kind of brand of dance music was was supposed to be originally played for gay people of color particularly on chicago's south side not necessarily for you know bottle service in ibiza but that's sort of where we are uh and so that was a big thing house music and then last but not least we have kind of something similar uh, would be techno as well. You know, techno is kind of associated with those European clubs and big parties and party boats, but it was actually born from the black community in Detroit. So techno was really a byproduct of African-American struggle and kind of a, a form of wordless protest. Um, D- Detroit DJ Robert Hood was actually credited as the originator of techno. He kind of Fuse funk, disco, gospel, kind of mixed it all up in the 1980s. And along with his underground collective, Hood's sound was really like unapologetically pro-black. You know, in his words, techno was really about the struggle of black artists. And it was really about people that came from nothing and, and kind of struggled. And it was about just yes, black artists and, and, and standing up for, for black people. So there's a lot really a lot of history of music that we don't we don't always know about so yeah i mean essentially from whether it's jazz to techno you know this is a music of people who have survived who have not only said you know what i'm not going to be silenced we're not going to be silenced it's people just standing up and singing or dancing about struggles that they've had about just overcoming years and years and and decades and century of of struggles so i think this is you know these are really important things important parts of history that i think we need to share and and obviously continue listening and enjoying music uh, regardless of of where we came from what color of skin we are We have to just continue uh, to listen to music, but also to learn the history as well. I'm really excited to have Dr. Malik Boykin as our next guest. He is the first Black professor in the Department of Cognitive, Linguistic, and Psychological Sciences at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. He's a member of the Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity, Inc., and he's an amazing hip-hop artist. Currently, Malik Starks, as he is known in the music world, has joined forces with producer Stefan Alexander, who is a physics professor at Brown University, and their song Dancing for Freedom has over 500,000 plays on TikTok and is streaming on all streaming platforms. Let's go to the phones and see what he has to say. Okay, great. So, welcome to Facing Race. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited to chat with you today and talk a little bit about a little bit about everything. So, yeah, I thought maybe we could just start having you kind of introduce yourself and talk a little bit about who you are and and what you do. Cool, cool, cool. Well, I am Dr. Malik Boykin. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of psychology 
at Brown University okay. in a department that's the Cognitive Linguistic and Psychological Sciences Department. So we have, you know, psychology, linguistics, and then some like cognitive science kind of all smashed together in one uh, department. But I'm a social psychologist. I study the 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 psychology of human social behavior, Great. which is a field of psychology that has historically covered um, group conflict, social issues, uh, stigma, prejudice, race, racism, you know, things of that nature. And um, that really is at the heart of the kinds of things that I think about, the kinds mm-hmm. of things that I uh, work on, the science of trying to, to understand. And then uh, I also perform uh, hip-hop music, uh, just as a, a, a thing that I've been doing since I was way younger. That's amazing. That um, has helped to keep me uh, emotionally balanced and, you know, prepared to fight another day. So, you know, I uh, make music that uh, feels good, that, uh, yeah, just helps to get some of the other ideas out onto the page and hopefully yeah. speaks to people that aren't going to read my uh, my papers with <laughs> structural equation models of human interactions. You know what I mean? Right, so, right. It's like... Yeah, yeah. So, so the folks I'm going to lose with the, with the statistics, hopefully I get them with the rhymes and... Um, you know, maybe some people would be interested in both, you know? I think, so. I, I think so. I mean, I think music, one of the things I like about music, I, you know, I always say I wish I had more musical talent because I'm not, I'm not really good with that. But I love listening to music because I love, you know, the messages a lot of times too that, you know, come through in music. And I think that's something that's always important, you know, and, and I think music can be such a great tool to sort of deal with a lot of these issues, you know, particularly race related issues that we're facing today. So I kind of wondered, you know, how, how do you kind of do that as an artist? Like, how do you mix, you know, your messages, whether it's about racism or, or what have you, how do you kind of, you know, get that all together in your music? Sure, sure. I mean, there's a, there's a level of, of songwriting that feels like that's meditative, mm-hmm. you know, really uh, a lot of your resources are just being poured into the, the, the sound pattern and the melody and the words you're choosing. And, and in those moments, you know, some of those for me throughout my entire life have been some of the most peaceful moments, you know, times where I, I had really, uh, uh, you know, it was just, Facing tough times, you know, facing uh, uh, periods of, of um, particular uh, frustration and sadness and loneliness. Uh, I'm a person who's, uh, you know, my mother died when I was like 13 years old. Oh, wow. And I was already writing songs. Yep. But, um, you know, in, in those years, I was really pouring into art <clears throat> in a way that was uh, therapeutic. Yes. And, um, you know, in, in one of the songs that has not, you know, been released yet, but will be released in the, um, you know, uh, uh, later in the year when I put out the, the high science EP, you know, there's a, a, there's a line where I talk about, um, you know, I've never been a gang star, but Guru and Primo got me through some tough days with my mama's chemo, you know? Mm. And it's like listening to music writing music, creating music, really, you know, it's been my art therapy, 
you know, and, and it continues to be that way. Right. Yeah. Um, and so with a song like dancing for freedom that we have, you know, uh, uh, currently released that's, you know, on Spotify, on Apple music and on all of the platforms. platforms, Yeah. It, It was very much me speaking out to what was happening in the world in a, uh, you know, there were Black Lives Matter flags flying over the police station. Mm-hmm. What? That, wow. You know, it just is like something that out, out of Twilight. Right. Thing. How did this uh, happen? You know, and, and protests in the streets all over the world, um, you know, for uh, a sake of, of, you know, these horrible murders that were, uh, uh, that the cameras were on. Right. Right. And and clearly, you know, this has been ongoing. I mean, we can't think of a time in the history of this nation where black communities weren't up in arms over the kind of violence that we were facing at the hands of the institution. Absolutely. uh, Be it the police or, or, you know, the, the, the local lynch mob, which probably included some of the local police. You know what I mean? Exactly. yeah, it's been a long been history. A part, a part of of the experience, <laughs> a part of the experience you have to make sense of, uh, 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 and what it means for you to, to to navigate the world in this body, in a black body in this country. And so, you know, but that's a that's a that's an international fight, right? Right, we're, absolutely. We're facing this this sort of uh, um, you know violence in a lot of places across the world. So, you know, Dancing for Freedom, I was thinking about some of these people who've been fighting these fights, you know, in, in uh, um, South Africa, obviously, Winnie Mandela, you know, who, you know, we name in the song, um, and, you know, in Kenya, Dinan Kamathi, mm-hmm. and, you know, so on and so forth. And many of the names that we thought of didn't make it into the song. Uh, you know, we were kind of Tetris blocking right. names together in a in a mosaic kind of piece that rhymed, right, and and was rhythm and like rhythmic. That. But the spirit of many of these people are in this song, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to to think about how many freedom fighters have used song, has used dance, have used social gathering and, and, you know, the kinds of, you know, parties that might happen at the end of the evening, uh, in civil rights movements, uh, in human rights movements around the world. It's kind of like, yeah, the, the musicians are part of this too, right? Miriam Makiba is a part of this too, uh, um, as a name that, that, you know, Kanja, uh, my, my co-writer of this particular song, you know, we, we had a long conversation. He actually taught me about Miriam, Miriam Makiba in the process of oh, writing this. I had um, just finished watching some documentaries and was, was reading uh, 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 some, some Toni Morrison and was reading some uh, some uh, Maya Angelou. A little bit of And had, had just seen documentaries about the both of them. Mm-hmm. And so some of, you know, some of the words of, of Maya obviously show up in the song. Yeah. Uh, and she's also a person who talks about dance, you know, and, and, and there's, you know, famous photo of her and uh, James Baldwin dancing, right? That's like, yeah, this this part of this is part of it. That's right? a whole part of it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so, 
And so that was it. It just was a, a way that I could contribute something of my voice that would also be lasting um, to the broader conversation and maybe even something that would be useful that, and think- that, that people could use and, and get out and dance and, and and replenish and get prepared for another fight. And, absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah. I think it's, I mean, I, that's no, a big thing. Right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to talk too much. I'm so sorry. No, I'm but so it's, it's a good but song, I, you know, and if people haven't had a chance to listen to it, I hope they do listen to it because like you said, it is an international thing. And I think, you know, it's something that's been going on really since the beginning of time of like this fight, you know, and kind of using music as like a vessel to, to sort of deal with a lot of these struggles. And I think, you know that's that's kind of part of the the message I feel like you're you're bringing you know which is is great. Yeah, and and um you know there's there's this other thing where you know we we've gotten about across the many videos that people have used the song to make and put up on TikTok. Mm-hmm. We've got about a, a, we we've cleared a million plays. Great, that's amazing over there. And I, I got a notification. That you know my song had been used, and I you know went to go click on this this profile, and it was a young black girl who had made a Black Lives Matter video with uh, some dance expression, and she putting up her black power fist with like some words about you know the 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 what it's what it means to, to try to make sense out of people wanting to kill you because you're black. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know this girl. Right. I don't know. Who know? Down long. Yeah. I don't know where this came from. Right. Right. But it's like in a world where I write the song to speak to this moment, to have this to come back to me was, I mean, wow. yeah. So I, <laughs> I messaged her. <laughs> I, I left a comment on her, on her page, you know, like this is this is amazing and you know keep it up and she's like i want to cry because you saw my video i love your song and i wanted to cry because she heard my song right she heard you (laughs) so it's like everybody yeah both of you are like whoa (laughs) this is big here this is really big you know and it's and that's such a great moment and it's nice that she's sort of using it you know for her, it was such a meaningful moment and experience, you know, and I think, and that actually is, it's interesting too, because one of the things that I was talking about too earlier in in this episode is sort of how music, a lot of times, strictly black music, sometimes gets misused and, you know, appropriated, right, by white culture. And so it's nice when you see something, you know, positive where it is used, you know, in a really great way. But I mean, do you feel like, as an artist, do you feel like that's still an issue of, you know, a lot of times black artists and black sound getting appropriated by by the music industry, especially white artists? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, th- there is, uh, uh, I know with, it, 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 like with, be- like taking it back to bebop music. Yep. Part of the reason why it existed is because the players felt like, they were getting written out of the music. The mm-hmm. folks were taking the sound, the jazz sound, and you know, putting <clears throat> putting the white band on the bandstand in suits that was you know palatable to the uh, uh, the record buying audience, the people who were allowed to go to these clubs, right? Because we weren't even allowed right. to be in those be there. Unless, 
playing music if we were even allowed to play music right, right? i mean we maybe we were allowed to you know uh, um mop up at the end of the night right but it's like uh folks were like okay if that's what y'all gonna do we're gonna play this music so fast and so technical that you know we are going to be the ones that are like if you want to hear this you got to come to us mm-hmm. right absolutely and in some ways like yeah like the music will change purposefully for these kinds of reasons and and then folks will you know uh, uh try to figure out how to to get involved right you know so um and we've seen this time again and uh with hip-hop we we have Especially you know, seen hip-hop. an explosion of, of white hip-hop artists yeah um white pop artists using hip-hop uh um and and in that you see you, you start to see the the share of black artists diminish mm-hmm. <laughs> right right and it's just like well you know we can if we can sell hip-hop without using black folks then why what do we need what do we need right, <laughs> right. What right. Do we, right. it's right. true yeah 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 and so then you know i feel like the music will then shift right like you know uh, uh, black folks will just find new ways to mm. express you know, what it is that we're doing and you know we continue to innovate and people continue to want it, but then people will continue to appropriate it. Yep, that's a good point. You know, so it almost feels like a, it's like a cat and mouse kind of thing. Yep, I can with, see that. Uh, black creation, black music creation, and um, you know the the commercialization of it and repackaging of it uh, with white artists to sell to an even broader white audience who might not want to hear it from you know the the, the black uh, uh black person. artists yeah yeah so you know i mean i yeah i i think that's a thing um definitely definitely i think that's a thing um and we you know just gotta be uh <laughs> yeah, just gotta be careful we've gotta keep innovating and, and thinking about how to uh make sure we handle our our business our actual contracts and things so that we don't get written out of this exactly exactly i mean i think that is a big thing but yeah it's sort of always you gotta be one step ahead almost you know always always sort of choo 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 um but yeah i mean it's it's an interesting thing to think about and i think that's yeah it's something something that's definitely still an issue you know, um, today, but I, I know that you, you mentioned that you were the first, uh, black professor in your department, um, at Brown University. Um, do you feel like, have you felt that the community in general has been really accepting and, and welcoming both with your hip hop music, but also just you as an individual, as, as a person of color? Yeah, absolutely. Um, more so, more, more than I even thought nice. it would be. Yep. Um, you know, I've met with the provost of the university, and he loves the song. That's amazing. The chair of my department loves the song, and the chair of my department is is you know accepting my music as a part of my service. So, where um, in as a tenure track professor, um, part of my you know a large chunk of what I'm responsible for is producing research, right. which I do. And um, a large uh, chunk of it is teaching. And then there's a chunk of it that's also service, right? So there's, you know, the service that I do out in the community. But she's, you know, my, my department chair is like, 
Yeah, but this music that you make is part of your service to humanity. Absolutely. That is. That's a big part of it. And the fact that I'm at an institution where the chair of my department is willing to argue on my behalf to the tenure and promotion committee that this professor who does produce research, who also produces music, that I am accepting this music as a part of their service. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that is just, um, you know, just speak to, to, to ways that Brown University is really trying to, to um, innovate and uh, be, um, you know, at the forefront of, of, of some of these conversations. And certainly it's, it's not a um, utopia. Right. And there are lots of There's... things that, uh, you know, in the history of, and in the, the present of uh, that we're still negotiating and figuring out. But I think that from the standpoint of like, I'm not getting sanctioned. I'm not having people say, Hey, do less music and do more. It's like, nah, nah, do this. You know? Yeah. Do this music. Um, You know, we're actually uh, just got interviewed by the comms, uh, the communications department of the university um, about the music. And, um, the song was actually produced by a physics professor at Brown University. And we have a six song project. Oh, great. Where he's producing all the beats. That's excellent. Can't wait yeah, to hear the rest of it. A brother from Trinidad. Well, a Trinidadian brother from the Bronx. Okay, nice. And, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, and, but, but he's, he, he is a stellar, uh, you know, researcher with, uh, uh, you know, books on, on the, the, the link between improvisational jazz music and how the universe is structured, right? And so, and I'm a, a psychologist <laughs> writing about, you know, racism and, and you know, uh, uh, and some of these other, and, you know, my personal history and things. So we're like combining this. Bring it all together. Together. And the university is like, yeah, we love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's how it has to be. I think just bringing people together, and that's—I mean—that's the beauty of it. Because I, I you know, sometimes I—I I feel like I know for me, I think, wow, you know, there's just we have so much to do. We have a long way to go. But then other times, it's like you're, you know, there are these inspirational moments where it's like, okay, like we're coming together, like we're doing something, we're heading in the right direction, you know. So it's like. I feel like, yeah, music's really one of those things. It, it can actually bring people together, you know? So it's, it's really inspirational. But, yeah, I mean, I was wondering what you felt. I mean, do you feel, you know, generally speaking, do you feel pretty optimistic with where things are headed in terms of race and race relations? Or do you still feel like, gosh, I mean, we we just have so much work to do? That's, that is a exceptionally complicated question and I'm going to give you an exceptionally complicated answer um I feel like at no point in human history in any type of human history can you see a time where groups of people were not you know differently striped thinking mm-hmm. of themselves mm-hmm. as the we're the these and there and you are the those right like yeah wherein those groups weren't uh either uh trying to destroy each other over resources uh and if 
and if they weren't, then it's it's like kind of not written about, <laughs> right? Like, like in areas like you know, like in um, you know, in in the North America, where you have many historical groups of of you know native populations that had their own cultures and things of that nature they're not, uh, you know, they're sometimes described as like a, a, you know, a thousand year peace or something like that, where folks, you know, kind of peacefully negotiated how the lands were going to be distributed and who had access to the river and, uh, and, and whatever. But we don't have much record of that. That's true. <laughs> where, where there's records, it's like when people were, were, were you know, Fighting, at each other's throats, yeah. At each other's throats over some resource, right? Yeah. And I just feel like as, as long as there's groups, as long as we see each other as like you're the these and, and you're the those and we're the these, you know, we're we are different groups and there's resources to uh, to try to position yourself to accumulate mm-hmm. at the expense of some other group, then we're going to have these race relations fights. It's gonna happen. Yeah, and I, I don't, um, I don't like it. I don't, uh, you know. But I, I feel like there are places and times and in, in you know microcosms at a school, at a company, in a community, people can peacefully negotiate how those resources are going to be doled out and peacefully you know, coexist. Mm-hmm. But when you kind of blow it up to a, a larger, you know, society level. There's always going to be issues. It's going to break up. It's going to break down. And folks are going to be trying to figure out how to get their, uh, their, their advantages. And mm-hmm. if there's more of those people or those people have control over more of the resources, then they're going to try to keep that going. Right. They're going to try to dominate, you right. know, and, um, and I, it is it is a potentially pessimistic, pessimistic viewpoint, but it's also, I mean... I mean, realistic, I, too. I just, know, I just don't have, I don't have data to counter. Sure, sure. Where, where right. show me the counter narrative. Show me where it has, you know, just worked out where there was just some egalitarian ideal that dominated the society where you did not have uh uh you know differential violence doled out to people that were in disadvantaged positions really it just happens everywhere um and in all of the places there are people who are fighting for that equality there are people who are fighting for the you know uh, um for positive group relations and if you take that away it's worse true so I feel like you have to have it. There has to there has to be the people that are on either side of it who are really trying to figure out how to make things better, because there will always be the people that are really trying to make it worse. Make it worse. Mm-hmm. If you let them mm-hmm. run free, then it can get as bad as it gets. Right? Mm-hmm. If, if if those people get too much power, too much access to to uh, being able to destroy other people. Then you get genocides. You get all kinds of, of uh, um, mayhem. 
mayhem and, and, and you know, mass destruction. And, yeah, so, I, you know, as my professor, Jules Harrell, who taught a course called Race and Racism, who teaches a course called Race and Racism at Howard University that I took that was oh, life-changing great. for me, as he says in, in quoting John Coltrane, you know, I just want to be a force for the good. And that's really kind of my approach. Yeah, it's like, that's how you see it. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to fix the things, but there will be the forces that are trying to make things worse and there will be the forces that are trying to make things better. And I, as, as long as I'm putting my time and energy and effort into being one of the forces that are trying to make things better, then, then I'm feeling um, feeling good about how I, I, I'm spending my life force on this, uh, on this rock. I like that. I like that a lot. And and I think obviously, too, with your work at the university and your work with your music, and I know you work with a lot of youth as well, it's it seems like you're really doing your part and you're really doing everything, you know, to to make it better. So yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and also just talking, you know, about your your music and I, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next, the next songs that are coming out. Cause I think, you know, you have a really good message there. So I think a lot of people can, you know, relate to that and, and really, you know, be motivated and inspired. So really exciting. I'm hoping so. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I appreciate, I appreciate the kind words about the tunes and more tunes on the way. And I actually was just with Stefan over the weekend, uh, down in New York city. And heard three new tracks that we're about to we're about to get back to cooking, you know. <laughs> so when, when this project drops, just know that the next one is uh, is going to be waiting in the wings uh, uh, soon after. So we gonna keep dropping these papers, keep keep speaking this message, and keep rhyming, you know. It sounds great. Yeah. Sounds great. Our thanks to Dr. Malik Boykin. I'm going to add a link so everybody can check out his music and his songs. And uh, definitely a great conversation. And I'm sure we'll continue to hear more from him in the in the future. Okay, that sound means it's time for Ask a Black Friend. So today's question is... Is it ever okay for non-black artists to use the N-word in their songs? Okay, so the actress Gina Rodriguez, who is from the TV show Jane the Virgin, she's Latina, and she found herself kind of in a little bit of hot water uh, several several years ago um, because she had posted a short clip of herself using the N-word while singing along to a Lauryn Hill rap verse. And she quickly deleted the clip. She responded with the usual, sorry if you were offended. And then she kind of followed up with another note on Instagram. And then she sort of made these big promises of like self-reflection. And and it became this whole debate. And some people kind of jumped on her and said, hey, like, you're Latina, you're not black, like, stay in your lane. Some people said, whatever, she's just singing along with a song. So, you know, it was kind of a little bit of a, of a discussion. Um, more recently, the hip-hop artist Fat Joe, well, he's, I guess, more of a rapper, rapper hip-hop, uh, he was doing an interview on a New York station, and 
he sort of equated Latin people with African Americans, and he sort of said, you know, they a lot of them identify more with African and Black culture than actual Black people himself. And a lot of people didn't like this because Fat Joe is Puerto Rican and Cuban. Um, he's he's not black and so yeah there's a lot of debate especially because he has a long history of of using the n-word in his songs and you know it's it's kind of a bit like okay hey why why do you get to use the n-word you're you're not black even if you identify with our culture so is it okay no it's probably not you know i think we could also argue too that many black rappers use the word way too much um, but you know, it's always going to be a topic of conversation. Obviously music is, people are free to express themselves how they want to express themselves. Um, but of course, I think if you are a non-black artist, you can't be surprised if people sort of come at you for using the N-word or for using other, other terms, uh, that maybe are not the most appropriate for for white singers. But I think, yeah, I think it's a discussion. I think especially nowadays, too, when we have social media, people are always going to be talking about things like that, uh, even if you do it one time or even if you post a video or, or a song and then you take it down, it's it's going to be a topic of conversation. Okay, so today's quote is from Ma Rainey, who is the mother of blues. And actually, by the way, if you have not seen the movie on Netflix, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, it is fantastic. And it doesn't get into a whole lot in terms of history, but it is a really interesting take on sort of the topic we were talking about of of how a lot of times black music, traditional black music, did sort of become commercialized by white producers in the in the white music industry and a lot of times these black stars didn't really get the the level of fame or even the financial compensation that that they deserved. So, in any case, really good movie, check it out, but uh, a good quote that she said was this well, they hear it come out, but they don't know how it got there. They don't understand that life's way of talking, you don't sing to feel bit better. You sing because that's a way of understanding life, end quote. So ultimately, I think what she's trying to say is that that music is really a way to communicate and it's kind of a way of getting the message out. And it's something that's really important to have in, in our society, that music Music is just important. You know, we need music. So thank you so much for joining and listening. And I will see you next time. Mm